Hi, this is Dr. Karen Horton from Johns Hopkins. In this talk, we'll be discussing small bowel obstruction. Okay, so what's the sensitivity of small bowel obstruction on CT? Well, the sensitivity of CT is usually uh, pretty high, between 80 and 100%, depending on what literature you're looking at, close to 100% in the more recent literature. It has highest sensitivity if the obstruction is longstanding or high grade, so that makes sense. If it's been there for a while, it's more likely to have the dilated bowel, and you'll be able to recognize it. It has the lowest sensitivity if it's very early because the bowel hasn't had time to dilate, or if it's a very low-grade obstruction, partial obstruction. CT can identify the cause of the obstruction in up to 95% of cases. So what are you looking for? The CT signs, I think the most important thing is to look for the dilated bowel. So if there's an obstruction, the bowel proximal to the obstruction will become dilated. And then you'll see decompressed bowel distal to the site of the obstruction. So if you see dilated bowel and decompressed bowel, you need to look around and see if you can find the transition point. And that's the most reliable CT sign of obstruction. So the accuracy of CT is directly related to the difference in the size between the dilated and decompressed loops. And that's why it's better for a long-standing or high-grade obstruction than it is for a very early or low-grade obstruction. This is an, a study from 1995, and even then it said that CT could correctly distinguish between a small bowel obstruction and ileus in 97% of patients, and it could find the cause of the obstruction in 97% of patients. So that's why CT is so good. It can tell you whether or not there's an obstruction and what the cause of the obstruction is. If you look at the ACR guidelines, uh, they propose that abdominal and pelvic CT with IV contrast is the most appropriate imaging examination um, when you think you have a complete or high-grade small bowel obstruction. If you think you have a low or intermittent small bowel obstruction, then CT may be helpful. You may consider doing maybe CT enterocolysis or a standard enterocolysis or even a small bowel follow-through may be helpful. Here's a study looking at sensitivity and specificity. 95% sensitivity, 90% specificity of CT in detecting the transition zone. So that's what we're all trying to find, the transition zone, because if you don't see the transition zone, you won't necessarily know the cause of the obstruction. What type of study should you be doing? Well, the technique is very important. If the patient can tolerate it, positive oral contrast is helpful because you can see the contrast moving through. You can see whether it becomes diluted. You can see if it makes it to the colon. Some patients who are obstructed are really sick, and so they're not going to be able to drink, and that's okay because in an obstructed patient, they have plenty of enteric fluid. And also, sometimes your surgeons may not want you to give the oral contrast if they're thinking of going to surgery. IV contrast, I think, is very helpful. Portal venous phase is usually fine. You don't need a very early phase, like an arterial phase, unless there's a concern for a closed-loop obstruction or ischemia. So what kind of causes are you looking for? So most commonly, it's going to be an adhesion, right? And you don't see an adhesion on CT. You just see the transition from a dilated loop to a decompressed loop, okay? So you might see a subtle angulation, but usually don't see the adhesive band. So when I look at a study, if I see dilated bowel and decompressed bowel, I look around, see if I see the um, site of obstruction. If I don't see anything there, then I call it an adhesion, and I'd be right 85% of the time because 85% of small bowel obstructions are called by, caused by adhesions. But what you're really trying to do is find those other things. Is it something they need to do about? Is it a hernia? Is it a tumor? Is it inflammation like Crohn's or appendicitis as the cause? What's the value of multiplanar reconstructions? I think they're very helpful 
Um, sometimes the axials are fine. You can make the diagnosis no problem. But in some cases, it, the axial plane may not be ideal. So it's very helpful to look in coronal or in sagittal to identify the site of the obstruction and the cause of the obstruction when you can't be sure on the axial images. Do you need to do volume rendering or full-blown 3D? In most cases, no. Occasionally, that's helpful, especially in closed-loop obstructions. So here are a couple of cases. So here's a small bowel obstruction from an adhesion. And what we see is very dilated small bowel loops. And then the left lower quadrant, you have totally decompressed small bowel loops. Okay, so now I know there's a small bowel obstruction. All I need to do is look around. Is there a hernia? No. Did I find a tumor? No. Do I see any areas of inflammation, like appendicitis, diverticulitis, pancreatitis, things that secondarily can cause obstruction? No. So this is a small bowel obstruction caused by adhesions. Here's another one from adhesions. You have dilated bowel in the left abdomen, decompressed bowel in the right lower quadrant, so we know it's an obstruction. In real time, you're going to look around. Is there a hernia? Is there a tumor? Is there a source of inflammation? No, no, no. Then you're going to call it an adhesion. Here's one with very dilated small bowel, and you can see the oral contrast is getting more dilute as it progresses distally. Several of those bowel loops in the right abdomen have kind of a funny intraluminal contents with air bubbles, almost like a stool-like appearance. So that's called the small bowel feces sign, and you can see that uh, proximal to an obstruction. You can also see it in patients with dysmotility, like scleroderma patients, when things are moving very slowly. But in this case, you have the dilated bowel. In the right lower quadrant there, you have totally decompressed small bowel loops. And you have the small bowel feces sign. Is there a hernia? No. Tumor? No. Any signs of inflammation? No. Then it's going to be an adhesion. Here's one caused by a hernia. So you can see dilated small bowel loops. We have decompressed distal small bowel loops. And we have a hernia in the right lower quadrant there in the abdominal wall. And then I have a coronal image showing you the large hernia where the bowel is going in and decompressed bowel is coming out. Here's another patient. We have dilated small bowel. We're following it down. Mostly in the right side, you'll see dilated bowel. In the left side, totally decompressed small bowel. Okay, so we have an obstruction. We're going to look around for the cause. And I think here you can see this is lower in the pelvis. On the axial images, you have a hernia there in the inguinal region by the external iliac vessels. And I think this is better seen in the coronal view, and you can see the dilated bowel leading right down to the hernia and then the decompressed bowel coming out. So this is an emergency, right? This is an obstructing hernia um, as a cause of the small bowel obstruction, so that patient needs to go to surgery. Here's another small bowel obstruction from a hernia. Again, we have dilated proximal small bowel, totally decompressed distal small bowel. We're looking around for a cause, and when we come down to the pelvis, sure enough, we have a large inguinal hernia there containing fat and small bowel loops. It's probably better seen on the coronal image where you can see the dilated bowel going in and the decompressed bowel coming out. Here we have a video. So right away I'm seeing dilated small bowel. Dilated small bowel. The colon looks fine. And we have some decompressed loops. This is a patient who has an obstructing paraumbilical hernia. Okay, so when we come back up, here's the uh, paraumbilical region. And you can see you have dilated bowel going in and decompressed bowel going out. So this is an obstructing paraumbilical hernia causing an acute small bowel obstruction. This is the same case on the sagittal views. And again, at the region, I'll just scroll through first. And when I come back at the region of the umbilicus, you can see that the dilated bowel goes in and decompressed bowel comes out. I mentioned that inflammation can cause small bowel obstruction. So that's definitely a cause that you can see 
in patients with Crohn's disease is a good example. We have very inflamed terminal ileum. You can see in the right-sided image and dilated small bowel proximal to that. So certainly Crohn's disease is a cause of small bowel obstruction that needs to be recognized. Here's another patient with a small bowel obstruction, kind of intermediate grade. You see dilated proximal and mid-small bowel. The very distal small bowel is decompressed. And you can see that very inflamed loop of ileum where you have mucosal edema, submucosal edema, and uh, luminal narrowing. Okay, here we have a video and we're scrolling down. Dilated small bowel, colon looks normal. Going down a little bit further, dilated small bowel again. We have some decompressed small bowel and we're trying to find the cause. And as we come down into the pelvis, you can see that very inflamed loop of ileum. It's a long segment. And again, mural thickening, mucosal hyperemia, edema in the submucosa as the cause of the obstruction. I think this patient probably has a few um, fistula as well, because you see some communication there between that loop and the adjacent colon. It's important to look around for tumors, right? Tumors can definitely be a cause of small bowel obstruction. Carcinoid is like a classic one. So it can be a mesenteric mass with calcification, it has a desmoplastic reaction, which causes a lot of scarring, and therefore can result in a small bowel obstruction, as in this case. Here we have another video and we're scrolling down. We see some dilated small bowel. The colon looks okay. And in this case, we see some pneumatosis. Okay, you can get pneumatosis proximal to obstruction. In this case, the entire small bowel was dilated to the level of the ileocecal valve. So this actually was a very difficult case because it could be an obstruction at the ileocecal valve, right? It could be a tumor there as the source. We didn't really see a site of transition. They did, here's the coronal uh, view, which shows you completely distended small bowel all the way to the terminal ileum. So they did a colonoscopy, they didn't see a mass. So we were kind of stuck. It turns out this patient has scleroderma. So I just want to tell you there are some pitfalls. Scleroderma in particular, they don't have normal small bowel motility. So things get dilated, you get fluid, you get some of the same findings in an obstruction, but it's not a mechanical obstruction. Um, specifically for the past, for the next few minutes, I want to talk about closed loop obstruction. So this is relatively uncommon. It's associated with a high risk of vascular compromise. So this is the type of obstruction you need to recognize and you need to call the surgeons right away. Very high morbidity and a high mortality. So what happens is a segment of the small bowel is obstructed at two separate points along its length. So it kind of twists. So it's totally obstructed. And these loops will get very dilated. And sometimes it can come and go but sometimes it can pro, uh, progress to strangulation, so it has to be recognized. It can be caused most commonly by obstruction. Sometimes it can be a weird internal hernia, for example, or a congenital band in children or malrotation. Here's an example of what happens. So it's that loop is twisted at two points, so it's completely closed. And again, most commonly it's from adhesions. What you're going to look for are specific signs. So we have the beak sign, for example, radial sign, a U or C configuration of the dilated loops, and the whorl sign. So the beak sign happens when you see dilated loops and you see the twist. So it's a tapering of the closed loop when the plane is imaged in a longitudinal orientation, when that loop is imaged longitudinally. So it might not be on the axial. You might have to see it on the coronal. Okay, in a series of 120 patients with closed loop obstruction, the beak sign was found in 32%. Here's an example of the beak sign. We have dilated bowel, small bowel, and you see that beak. 
and that's the twist. This is a classic closed-loop obstruction. All the loops line up in a C or U configuration. You have a lot of edema at the central portion of that obstructed loop. That's a great sign. Here's another example of the beak sign. Radial array is the mesenteric vessels emanating from that central point. So this is at the center of that obstructed loop. Okay. In a series of 25 patients with surgically confirmed closed-loop obstruction, the radial ray sign was an important sign in predicting ischemia and infarction. So this is that case I showed you before. It also has the radial array. See how all the stranding in the mesentery goes to that point, and you can see the mesenteric vessel. So that's a great sign. Because it's a loop obstructed at two points, it often will look like a U or C-shaped you know, if you're looking in the right orientation. And that's um, a good clue that you might be dealing with a closed-loop obstruction. You should look more carefully. For example, here's dilated small bowel, decompressed distal small bowel. But it's not just a small bowel obstruction. When you look, all those dilated loops are lining up, and they make like a U or sometimes an O configuration, and you see inflammation at the center of those loops. That's a great sign of a closed-loop obstruction. Here's another case. You can see it's a U or a C-shaped configuration with the fat at the center of those loops inflamed. The whirl sign um, has been reported and has been um, supported by other investigators since it was initially reported in 1981. It's a difficult sign because sometimes you see swirling vessels and whirl sign in patients who aren't obstructed in postoperative patients. So you just have to be careful with that, that it's not always specific for closed-loop obstruction. But you can look around for it and see if you see it. Here's an example of the whirl sign. You can see those mesenteric vessels in the center kind of swirling around there with the dilated loops. Um, here's a patient where we have a small bowel obstruction. You can see that the loops are all lined up. You have edema and inflammation at the center portion of the obstructed loops. So that's a good example of what a closed loop obstruction looks like. Um, for the last couple minutes, I just want to mention internal hernias. I think these are a challenge. Um, they can be a cause of closed-loop obstruction. So the loop goes in and it twists, um, and it's resulting from uh, congenital, usually congenital, it can be post-surgical, uh, peritoneal opening or a mesenteric defect. And so what happens is the loops go in there and twist. It's actually an uncommon cause of closed-loop obstruction, but it may be something that you should be aware of. I've listed the locations here. Periduodenal is the most common. I think these are a big challenge and sometimes hard to recognize, especially because if you just look for bowel loops in abnormal locations, sometimes you can misdiagnose an internal hernia, and it's just because the patient is postoperative. Here's a nice AJR article that describes the different causes. Remember, the periduodenal is the most common. So what you're going to look for is a sac-like mass or a cluster of loops in a characteristic location. When obstructed, they'll become dilated, so then you'll have an obstructing internal hernia, and then you'll have the other signs of a closed-loop obstruction. So for a periduodenal hernia, you can see the loop slides through there, and then it gets stuck if it gets obstructed, and then you'll be able to diagnose it. But again, it doesn't have to be obstructed. So here's a case of a left periduodenal hernia, another periduodenal hernia. So you have a weird configuration of bowel loops in an abnormal location. And then just an example of the next most common would be foramen of Winslow. So you can see the small bowel loop is going to slide through that defect. And then you'll have bowel in that abnormal location. And again, you may have an obstruction, but you don't necessarily have an obstruction. 
Post-surgical adhesions and post-surgical rents can also cause defects that can lead to an internal hernia or lead to a closed-loop obstruction. So here we have an example. We have a video, and we're scrolling down. We have some very dilated small bowel loops. And again, they're in a slightly unusual position. This is a patient who's had surgery, and you can see that they're lateral to the left colon. It's a patient with a nephrectomy. So this was a small bowel obstruction caused by an internal hernia in a patient after nephrectomy. So in conclusion, CT is a modality of choice for evaluation of patients with small bowel obstruction. If the patient can drink, you can give them positive contrast. If they can't, it's fine. They'll have enough fluid. IV contrast is very helpful. Multiplanar reconstruction is extremely helpful when you're looking for these classic signs. Remember, adhesions are the most common cause, but you need to look around. Is there a hernia? Is there a tumor? Is there signs of inflammation? And then remember about internal hernias um, as a cause of a closed loop obstruction. Thank you.